Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 52, and then concluding with verse 58. Now hear the word of the Lord. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of earthly bodies another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and stars differ from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is God's word. Well, we have been working diligently and slowly through this one chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, for the last several weeks since Easter, studying in depth uh, this idea of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
and all of its implications for life and the way that if we just get it, the way the Bible talks about the resurrection, it really ought to launch a veritable revolution in life. If you want to hear the past sermons that we shared over the last several weeks, you can find them on our website. But here we have today our last one. One last one for this series. Let me say a word of prayer before we take a look at this passage. God, we pray right now for resurrection power, life-giving grace, that you would overcome any kind of deadness in our minds or in our hearts that maybe doesn't understand or maybe resists you and the truth of your word. We pray that the reality of the gospel and the love of Jesus would come alive in our hearts and in our community this moment. So bless this time in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been looking at the ways in which the resurrection of Jesus and in his resurrection, the promise of future resurrection for all those who are in relationship with him, how it promises to us a lot of incredibly special, powerful, life-changing things, like we saw the promise of a guilt-free life. That the resurrection of Jesus gives us assurance that your sins really have been forgiven. The promise of a guilt-free life but also the promise of a death-free life. That the resurrection of Jesus we saw a couple of weeks ago contains in it the full and life-giving promise that one day, someday, death itself will die. Hallelujah. And then we saw the promise that the resurrection of Jesus means and spells for us an evil-free and brokenness-free existence, that the resurrection of Christ invites us to engage this world with the hope that one day all evil and all injustice and all brokenness will be eliminated and healed and redeemed and restored. And so even today we can start planting little flags of victory and resurrection in all areas of life. Declaring to the world and to those around us and to ourselves that brokenness and lifelessness is not the way that life was meant to be. And one day there is a coming day when life will be all that it was meant to be when Jesus comes again. And then we saw this promise of a fear-free Life, that the resurrection of Christ gives us incredible power to love even when that loving costs us dearly, even our very own lives. You want to love like that? You want to serve people like that? And then finally today, lastly, we're looking at the way that the resurrection of Jesus gives us the promise of a waste-free life. What does that mean? Just to explain this passage briefly before we look at some practical implications of it. 
Paul has been underscoring throughout this chapter and here in the beginning part of this passage two key points. One is that the resurrection of Jesus wasn't simply a resuscitation of a dead body. That what happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus rose from the grave wasn't simply a return back from the dead where Jesus just goes back to the same physical condition that he was in three days prior. Rather, the Bible tells us and Paul tells us here, Jesus, when he died, passed through death, not coming back to life from death, but passed through death and came out the other side with a deathless, immortal, perfected, new creation, eternal body in relationship with God. Free from decay, free from the effects of sin, free from the brokenness of life. The second idea then that Paul gives us is that the resurrection of Jesus, this passing through death into immortal, perfected bodily life, is shared by all those who embrace him. So Paul, we saw back in verse 20, refers to Jesus' resurrection Not as just an isolated historical event that happened just to him and him alone 2,000 years ago, but as a first fruits of a greater harvest, a single preview and a glimpse in him in the middle of history of what will one day happen to all those who belong to him at the end of history, them too, you too, if you belong to Jesus by faith, being raised from the dead and given a perfected, imperishable, immortal, brokenness-less existence in your body. And so we see this, for instance, in verse 35, where Paul talks about the ways in which the dead who have relationships with Christ will be raised to life. And one day when Jesus returns, all those who are still alive, who are in Christ, will be changed. We see this towards the end. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Now. You may be saying to yourself, quite understandably, that sort of thing just doesn't happen. Come on. Right? We just know, or do we, that that sort of thing can't happen, doesn't happen. It's hard, if not impossible, to believe in this idea of a future bodily resurrection and perfection of all things physical. And you know what? Paul is addressing that very question of doubt. In verse 35, at the top of the page, Paul starts off by saying, but someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? And that is not just a question. You can hear it in the tone and in the wording, a question that's just asking for information. It's rather a question that's asked in skepticism. 
And I'm not sure this really happens. Please explain how you think this happens. And Paul's answer is, actually, this sort of thing happens all the time in nature. In the natural world around us, we find analogies of resurrection all the time. And Paul says, take a look at a seed. And so I said, let's take a look at a seed. I have in my hand here from Giant, right around the corner, I'm not advertising for them, uh, a plum. This one here has a sticker, number 4042, says it's from Chile. A nice, juicy, reddish plum. And over here, what this plum came from, namely, a seed. You naturally understand that if you're hungry, or maybe you're a plum fan, maybe not, you might want to take a bite out of this thing and enjoy it. Its sweetness, its crunchy exterior, its soft innards, its sweetness. You would not do that with this seed now, would you? It's hard. It's bitter. It's inedible. It would hurt to bite down on this thing. These two are made of different kinds of flesh, and yet they are both, in essence, a plum. The question is, Paul says, how did this little thing become this glorious thing? This is what Paul says. Do you see it? As a plum, as a seed, when it's put into the ground... It actually dies in seed form. It dies. Verse 36, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. But then the plum, which died as a seed, changes and transforms. You don't end up with the same kind of plum body that you started with. Can you imagine that over time, maybe a couple of months, you plant this thing in the ground and you come out with a tree with a lot of these little guys hanging off the ends of the branches? That would be a disappointment. (laughs) You want these, a different kind of flesh. Verse 37, when you sow, you don't plant the body that will be, You plant the seed. Paul says maybe a wheat seed or something. We're talking about plums here today, Paul. Verse 39, he reminds us that not all flesh, not all bodies are the same. But here's what has happened, Paul said. The seed has died, and yet the plum still lives. Radically the same in its essence still a plum, yet radically different in its form. Because you would never eat this, and you do enjoy this. What is Paul saying? The resurrection of the body is not so different from that. Verse 42, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. When you die, your original physical body comes to an end like this hard seed shell. But in the resurrection, you are physically transformed. You're still you. A plum is still a plum. 
But your outward form, your physical body is radically different and not just different, sweeter, better, more glorious. Verse 42, the body that is sown is perishable. Our bodies are winding down, falling apart, dying. We know this. But here Paul says it is raised, imperishable, sweet. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, vulnerable to injuries, vulnerable to accidents. It's raised in power. It's sown as a natural body, an ordinary human body in our death, and it's raised up as a spiritual body. And make sure that it's clear here that what Paul means by spiritual is not non-physical. That's the way we normally take spiritual, but the word that Paul is using here is actually talking more specifically about being animated by, filled by, and empowered by God's Holy Spirit. In fact, he's talking about a time when our bodies will be not less physical, but if you could get your mind around this, more physical, more empowered by God. Every crack and crevice filled with the life of God. Earlier in this paragraph, this passage, Paul tells us that there will be a time when God will be all in all. Nothing about this broken world will hinder his presence. Nothing in our sin and our fallenness will be a barrier to his life-giving presence. And that includes our physical bodies transformed into a new kind of physicality, much more real, more firm, more indestructible, more incorruptible, more imperishable, more of how God intended our life with Him to be, not just spiritual, but deeply, infinitely physical. And just like we often talk about people that maybe are struggling with an illness or are nearing death, we say things like, that person is just a shadow of his former self. Paul is telling us that we right now, as nice and fleshy your flesh is, you today are but a shadow of your future selves. If you are in Christ and have the promise of resurrection one day. Okay, what difference does this theological hubbub have to do with life today? What difference does it make practically? I used to have a 1992 Honda Accord, which was mine, and I was so proud of it. Bought it with my own money. After taking a job up in the Northeast, a great color called Champagne, even though all my friends insisted on saying it was pink, I said, no, it's Champagne. Nice little tail in the back, made me look like hot stuff as I was driving it, and it was a piece of junk. Everything about it was falling apart, and I knew its death was just around the corner. And just about everything, to, you have a car like this? 
One of those things where every time you take a look at it or take a spin, it feels like something else fell off (laughs) or something else isn't working. I was down to just one door handle on the driver's side. The other one had no handle. I had to keep nose pliers on the dashboard to go in and grab the little hook to open the door or to call out to my friends to go outside and open it from the outside. I had no AC knob. Also had to use the nose pliers for that. Had to get new brakes. Had to get new tires. Had to get new just about everything, including a new transmission. And this thing, I mean, you know how... Thank you for the empathy and the sympathy, right? This is expensive stuff. And I don't know if you've experienced this. You sit there and you're thinking, there's just no way this car is worth it. I'm about to throw this thing away and he's asking me to spend another 2000 bucks on it. And I did, because I needed my wheels. I needed to get around. But you're wrestling with this and finally I got rid of it. And here you are thinking to yourself, and maybe you've been in this situation, man, if I'm going to throw this thing out or if I'm going to get rid of it pretty soon... It just feels like a waste of time to invest more in it. In fact, I don't even want to make it look nice anymore because it's not going to be mine pretty soon. I'm just going to junk it, right? And you can ask Paula. I never cleaned it, ever. (laughs) I didn't care. It just got me from place to place and it was purely functional because I knew one day it was going in the trash heap. And this is what happens, friends with your vision of your future. If you think your bodies, or if you think your physical reality around you is just going into God's trash heap, you're not going to take care of it. You're not going to invest in it. And you might just throw it out. Right? Like my car. This is what we do. And this is where it gets so practical to understand what if the Bible is true? That the Christian future is not a spiritual, non-material, non-physical future. That though in the intermediary time when people die and their souls are violently separated from their bodies, gloriously people are with Jesus and with God, but that there's not just life after death, but rather, as some theologians have put it, there is life, physical life, after life after death. What if, just what if, it's true? That God's intent was not to give us an escape hatch from this physical world one day and call it salvation. But rather that his intent was that his life and power would come down to this earth and heal this broken world of all of its wounds and call that salvation. What if, what if God's plan is not our escape from this physical world, but rather the giving to us a perfected version of our bodies and this physical world. Earlier in this chapter, just two weeks ago, we talked about the ways in which this applies not only to human beings, but to the whole cosmos. Other parts of the Bible talk about one day God bringing about 
all things in all newness, a new heavens and a new earth. Folks, Columbia Heights is forever. And this world in perfected form, yes, in renewed form, is forever. And I wonder if that has implications for three areas of life that I want to touch on, and then we'll open it up for Q&A. One, neighborhood life. Secondly, for our bodies. And thirdly, for our daily work. So for neighborhood life here as a neighborhood church, we're reminded here, therefore, that the vision of resurrection, both Jesus is in the past and therefore the promise of resurrection in the future, reminds us that physical things, friends, matter to God. This mindset that the only thing God cares about is the non-physical and the spiritual comes more from Plato than it does from Paul. It comes more from ancient Greco-Roman philosophy or present-day New Age philosophy than it does biblical theology. Physical things matter to God. How do we know? Because He raises it up. And He doesn't say, that experiment didn't work. Let's start over. Or that thing is irreparable. Let's give them something better. No bodies. No physical reality. No. Physical things matter to God. And if that's true in the future, it's true now. Sidewalks matter to God. And whether they're walkable and how they create community in the way that people interact and whether they're clean and safe. Trees matter to God. Martin Luther, the theologian from the 16th century, said this, if resurrection is true, and if you know that Jesus is coming tomorrow, what should you do? Plant a tree today. Because it's going to make it forever. These things that matter, that may, if we could just imagine, be more glorious one day in its perfected form than we can get our minds around. But trees matter, and alleys matter, and the way that they smell (laughs) matters to God. And parks, and the way they bring people together and give refreshment and give space for church picnics on June 16th, come out. And whether a building that goes up or another one that comes down contributes to community life and whether it looks good because beauty matters to God and the aesthetics of a neighborhood and of people. It's not just function, but form too. Why? Because God made stuff with beauty and with form and with reality and He cared to Keep it for all of eternity and not junk it. As well as the physical and material needs of people where we in our engagement with our neighbors are not simply loving people according to their spiritual needs, though that is vital and essential because again, this promise is only for those who do belong to Jesus and therefore share in His resurrection just in the future. 
So caring for people's spiritual needs, yes, but also caring for their physical and material needs, their physical well-being, their air conditioning units in the public housing places down the street that don't often have working AC units as the weather gets warmer. It matters, and so it should matter to us. A physical neighborhood, physical love in the neighborhood. Secondly, I wonder what this means for our bodies. God cares about your physical body. God cares about them, and so should we. He cared about them so much that he tore his own son's physical body apart, as well as subjecting his son to suffering in his soul, the wrath of God in our place for our sins that he didn't deserve for our salvation. He did that, though, to redeem our bodies rather than throwing our bodies on a heavenly trash heap. Friends, you're going to get a perfected physical existence one day. And this means a couple things. It means hope. It means hope for people that are disabled. It means hope for people that have major physical impairments and who struggle day to day with chronic illness, with chronic pain, with an inability to move around because of an injury or because of a congenital condition. For those who are impaired by mental or physical disorders, depression, addictions, you're going to get a new physical body one day. A perfected one. One that God will give you by His grace. I've quoted Johnny Erickson Tata in the past, who a wonderful teacher and author, who years ago suffered a diving accident that left her paralyzed, quadriplegic, and who's done so much writing and reflection and ministry out of her suffering and out of her disability, but especially in articulating her own hope for this day of resurrection, where in one place she writes, then one day on that day, in my new, perfect, glorified body, standing on grateful, glorified legs, I'll stand next to my Savior holding his nail-pierced hands. His nail-pierced hands which purchased my own resurrection. It means hope. It also means contentment, I think, for the dissatisfied. Maybe you look in the mirror and you're just deeply discontent with the body that you've got. God is going to give you a perfected one one day. 
And well, I don't know what list you have in your heart or that you take around with you when you look in the mirror. And I don't know how deeply perhaps you do struggle with body image issues or maybe it's just a nagging nuisance for you. But of course, there are things that we don't like. And I've got a nice little list myself. You know, nose a little bit crooked. Head maybe a little too big. I sweat too much. You all know that. <laughs> Legs could be a little bit longer. Wish I could run a little bit faster, jump a little bit higher. Oh, and the list goes on and on and on. And yeah, hey, you could probably name a few for me too, right? <laughs> yeah, you might want to check this part out too and pray for that one. No. Can it give us hope and rest and contentment to know that we don't need to perfect our bodies here and now? Because you're going to get one of those one day. I don't mean to say that when you get to the day of resurrection, that if you don't like your nose, you're going to get a perfect better nose, or if you don't like your eyes, you're going to get a better eye, or if you don't like whatever, where we're swapping out every little body part one by one, what perfection means is the perfect version of you. Some of which might be a perfection of your heart where finally you can see the beauty and glory that God has invested in your physical body, which maybe today you're just blind to because of our culture standard of beauty and noses and eyes and legs and other body parts, physical features. But maybe we can start to rest a little bit with a little bit more resurrection contentment because you know Something better is heading your way. On the other hand, the resurrection also poses for us some accountability for the care of our bodies. The stewardship of our bodies. Do you realize, friends, that God cared so much about this your physical existence, that he included it as something worth slaughtering his son for and not only retaining, but redeeming and restoring and perfecting for all of eternity in the way that he wants to relate to you, not as a disembodied son or daughter, but as a fully physical, truly physical son and daughter. If that's true, and if it matters to God... Will you take care of it? Have you ever considered that part of your Christian discipleship, following Jesus, might just might include eating better, exercising, watching what kind of toxic stuff you put in your body and what you do with your body. I, I almost did not want to make this point today. I don't want accountability from you all and how I'm taking care of this, right? But why do we not talk about this? Is this not a major implication of the resurrection and the way that that future reality presently should call us and compel us to take this, our physical bodies, seriously to care for them with stewardship and to understand 
That to take both of these points in conjunction together, how believing in the future resurrection physically keeps us from over-caring for our bodies and keeps us from under-caring for our bodies, right? It keeps us from perfectionism and it keeps us from rejectionism because God will give you a new one so you don't need to make it all new and perfect now, but because He will, you should still take care of it and do your best with it here and now. Oh, what the resurrection will do to what you eat tonight. (laughs) I don't mean that as guilt. Please understand that. I really do not. And I'm not filling in the details of what exactly that can mean. I'm not defining your calorie count. Please understand. I'm simply saying we got to think about it. And maybe something needs to change. Thirdly, And lastly, our daily work. Our daily work. Do you realize that one of Paul's biggest points in this whole passage is that your physical labor really may last forever? We see this in verse 58, which we have included and repeated again and again with every sermon that we've preached in this series, because this is Paul's grand conclusion to talking about the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead. We too in the whole cosmos, together with him, one day, if you're in Christ, will also rise physically from the dead. What's the implication for us now? Paul says, verse 58, therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm that Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain, is not a waste. And so you look at your daily work and what you do from nine to five. Maybe you're a painter. Maybe you're putting on paint day to day, wall to wall, and you're looking at it, and you know that it might peel off or it might crack, and you know that maybe it'll get covered over one day, and maybe in your heart you're just tempted to say, what a waste, my labor is in vain, but then you remember this reality, and you know that you can say, Just because it's physical doesn't mean that it's forgettable. It just might be resurrected one day, that wall. And maybe you're working on a research paper or a spreadsheet or a memo and your computer blanks out. Happens, doesn't it? Or maybe something you're scratching down, writing. Maybe composing a song. Writing a poem, painting a portrait, or maybe working in a hospital, giving care to a patient that one day you lose. And you're tempted to say, what a waste, my labor was in vain. And then you remember this. And you remind yourself that just because it dies doesn't mean that it's forever destroyed. It just might be raised to life one day. Or perhaps you work in the field of international development. 
Maybe you labor in putting together or overseeing projects that put together sanitation and water supply systems in the developing world. And you know those will fall apart, perhaps. Maybe they'll work and maybe they won't. Or maybe you're a parent that's busting your behind every day, trying to protect your child, teaching and disciplining him and her with much weariness. And you want to say, whether overseas or here in the home, it just feels like a waste. It won't last, right? My labor must be in vain. And then you remember this. And you hear God's Word say to your heart, just because it's weak doesn't mean it's a waste. It just might be resurrected one day. And so you can see how much meaning it gives to our labor today, especially in the mundane. These little things that feel so forgettable or seem so wasteful or so rote and routine. And you feel like you just don't care because you're going to trade in or throw away that 92 Accord anyway. So it doesn't matter how you paint that wall. Or it doesn't matter what you do with that spreadsheet. Or it doesn't matter whether or not you invest in your child's life. Or it doesn't matter whether or not that sanitation or water supply system really does work. Except that you realize and you remember that you're getting a brand new car. (laughs) And God really does raise things to life so that you can be reassured as sure as you know the resurrection of Jesus Himself, that your labor with the mundane is never in vain. Your labor in the mundane is never in vain. Because everything that looks like it's decaying and dying, everything that looks weak and everything that looks perishable, including our physical bodies, but also the physical world around us, Paul says, one day, someday, it'll be raised to life. And we'll be part of the new world that God has already begun to construct and give to His people freely by grace. And you say, I want to be a part of it. How do I receive it? What do I do? Be like a seed. Paul says here in verse 36, it's the seed principle all over again. It doesn't come to life unless it dies. You want this kind of a life? You want resurrection life? This kind of promise? you got to die. And what I mean by that is the gospel invitation for you to come to the end of yourself. Admitting your sin, admitting your own weakness, admitting your own helplessness to save yourself, to give yourself the life that you think you're laboring for, but you know in your heart of hearts you can't earn and you can't engineer for yourself. It's always slipping through your fingers. To give up on that self-willed enterprise, to surrender and say, God, it's only by your grace as a gift. I must get it from you through your Son. This life that I always wanted, this life that you offer to me through your Son, Jesus. 
It's resurrection life. It's an incredible promise. It's the beginning of a revolution. Do you see it? Do you want to be a part of it? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this word which in so many ways seems so far off from us, but in other ways really is so near and relevant and day-to-day life changing. We pray for that grace to change, grace to grow, grace to wrestle with the implications of this good news. Give us new eyes to see you raised from the dead and eyes of faith to see ourselves belonging to you also raised together with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.